Welcome to Lateral Conversations. My name is Thomas Mark. This is a podcast about the evolution of consciousness, psyche and culture. I speak here with people who have something important to contribute to the development of spirit and society. My guests are therefore artists, philosophers, academics or activists, people not only with great ideas, but also the willingness to put them into the world. By doing so, I hope to contribute to the evolution by finding and exploring ideas and finally providing them to you. There's nothing more powerful, Victor Hugo once said, than an idea whose time has come. And if such a time for an idea has come, we can only find out by talking about them. As a philosopher, Alexander Barth has a vision of and for the world which is pretty unique. Blending new perspectives on the internet with a phallic approach on human behavior, he sees our best chances for the future in a new understanding and utilization of the internet, where we can transform ourselves and the world. In his view, we live in an emasculated and overfeminized world. What we need is a concrete, strong and phallic vision of where to go to, a vision uh, which I very much share. He is the author of books like Digital Libido, Synthesism, The Netocrats and much more. Alexander is also a Swedish pop star. We had a wide-ranging conversation which I very much hope you will enjoy. My name is Tom Mark. Take care. Alexander, thank you very much for being on this podcast that you took the time. Thank you. Um, so you, you, you studied philosophy, you became became a pop star and now you're writing these heavy philosophical, the super dense books. Can, yeah. you, can you tell us something about this journey of yours and how, how that all came about? Well, let's put it this way. I don't think you can be a philosopher without being an activist. Uh, I think if you're only talking theory and you're not practicing what you preach, you're not very credible. Right. And since we live in an age where media and technology are dominating just about everything, it would make sense for a philosopher to first pursue a career in media and technology, which is what I did. Uh, then, of course, there's also the other aspect is that, you know, Immanuel Kant debuted when I think he was 55 years old. He had everything ready, and within five years, he published his entire oeuvre. And, and what you can learn from that is that you can't really be a philosopher when you're young, right? right. Heidegger and Wittgenstein tried. They wrote their most famous books when they were young, out of their energy, but they regretted these books the rest of their careers. So it's probably wise to wait until you're like 40 years old before you get published. Uh, I was 39 when right. my first philosophy book was published. So, so um, both these two things, that it's good to have another career first before you go into the world of philosophy, and the fact that we live in an age where understanding media and technology is fundamental and should be the most important question for philosophy, that also meant that the, the, the uh, expertise I've got out of having a successful career in media before I started writing, right. only adds to the credibility. Right. And so how much did it, I mean, like referring explicitly to, to your career as part of Army of Lovers, right? Because when I see those videos, it seems to me it's like very, I mean, you were very young. It's, it's like very postmodern, like, like with very elements of 
pastiche and not not in a bad way but i was wondering how much the experience of it did shape you to have this particular worldview on postmodernity now our is was incredibly ironic so in an age where everybody was obsessed with authenticity, we decided that the only authenticity that can really exist is the one that doesn't pretend that it is authenticity. Right. So we put together a band of very charismatic people who all pretended they were aristocrats from the 18th century with syphilis everywhere. Like, <laughs> like they had their brains blown out. And we're happy about it. So very un-American. Uh, when I came into the music industry in the late 1980s, and we started making all these sort of electronic hit records out of Scandinavia. The entire scene was completely dominated by Anglo-Saxon discourse. Right. So it was all about English men and Americans and, and how they, you know, had their better taste or more talented and everything should be according to their agenda. And if you were French or German, basically you just made terrible copies of what the English and Americans had done already. And right. I hated this whole presumption. So I wanted to create a really European band with the Army Lovers. I wanted to be ironic. Yes, I'd read Baudrillard and Leotard and Foucault, but I, I wouldn't say it directly influenced me. It was, more, it was more the fact that you could suddenly make music with computers, get rid of all the musicians, so why not even get rid of the singers if you wanted that? I mean, get rid of it all, mm. outsource absolutely everything, and just put a band on a stage that's just is terrifically charismatic. And that's exactly why the band was successful and sold over 7 million records. It oh. was a bit of fresh air. And it's one of the few things that actually survived from the 1990s because it was completely contra the trend of the time, which was almost like things like MTV Unplugged. Mm. Obsession, you know, with... With, with grunge and with, with realness, which is whenever, whenever the media industry talks about authenticity, you can be absolutely sure that it's fake. <laughs> That's true. Absolutely sure it's fake. Uh, I also knew that the music industry had been uh, the spokespeople uh, of two generations. So in the 1960s, 1970s, um, starting with Bob Dylan, leading up the way to punk and disco and all those different forms of music. Uh, you represented cultures that were otherwise unseen if you did music. But I knew when we get to the 1990s that, that the only way to do music then was to still be subversive. Um, so Army of Lovers personified queer culture at the time while it was still happening before it killed itself in, in academia. Um, and uh, that's what I want to do with the band. And later I did a band called Vacuum after that. that right again, to take the aesthetics that's totally opposed to the current trend, right. uh, try to go against it, go subversive. I was much more interested in being artistic and subversive and be number 23 in the charts than to try to play and with the audience and be number one. Would you agree when I, when I say that it was like a, like a postmodern band, like in its, in its core in a way, because of, I mean, like, like the elements of transgression and, you know, the art, the style of the music. I don't mean it in a bad sense. I mean it like in the best no, possible no, no, sense. I, yeah, in fundamental sense of postmodernism as an architectural school, yes. In the current American sense, like a bad word you throw at people, no. No, 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 so, I don't mean that. Mm -hmm. No, great. So, so yes, definitely. The, the idea that you could throw anything together and create a new aesthetics, uh, all right, a okay. wild mm -hmm. and crazy mix of influences, this, this idea of fusion. I mean, our mule lovers picked up musical inspiration from everywhere in the world. So we would like, we wrote a pop song called Carry My Urn to Ukraine. 
<laughs> it became a modern national anthem of Ukraine when Ukraine became independent because nobody else in England or America would ever think of writing a song celebrating Ukraine. Right. So we did. So it's, it's not that hard to be contrarian in the music industry, that's for sure. It's, so, it's all about current trends and fads and everybody's running in the same direction. Everybody's scared to be the outsider. So that's the easy part, to be honest about it. But that's what I always tried to do. Right. And w uh, was there like a key moment, a revelation where you, where you thought, well, you have to go beyond that? Was there something like, because your, your, your books are very, I mean, it's, it's a huge shift, like a 180 degree shift between like those, uh, your work uh, as, a, as a musician and these books you write. And it's like, it's a... Like I wanted, I, I desired to become a theater director when I was young. I thought I would be an actor, discovered that I actually wanted to write the plays. And I was a playwright already in my teens. I went to theater school in America. Uh, and, you know, it, I was the perfect guy to have a huge career in theater, but discovered it was too isolated, okay. too old, too dusty, performing the same performance all over again and again every night when actually recording things and taping things have been the standard for cultural output. Uh, so I lost the interest in theater, not because I don't love theater, I really do, but because it wasn't my, it wasn't my era. And, and the only reason I didn't go into film probably was because it takes five years to go from idea until completion when you mm. film. And in one night, the whole film can be over and done with. So I didn't have the patience. I highly respect the people who work with film. Some of my friends have huge careers in film. I highly respect them because it takes much more guts and, and staying power than I had when I was young. So I wanted to find something that could be nice to myself that still was my own medium. And I knew as an artist, and being a philosopher as being an artist, I knew that it didn't matter which medium I picked, really, because as long as I had a medium where this, this thing inside of you that wants to get out had an expression, then I'd be fine. And that's where the music industry was fine with me when I was 23 and discovered a musical talent and made that career, knowing all along that I would one day write. It was, it was a doomed to write one day. Just, when I was saved at seven, eight years old, I, I just picked up paper, pen, and started writing instantly. So a writer was something I'd be, but not a novelist. So obviously the ultimate form of writing, if you're not a novelist, would be philosophy. Mm. Uh, still, I didn't know whether I had anything meaningful to say. You know, you, you could be one of these guys who wakes up in the morning and discovers, I'm actually born in a time where philosophers can say that much. And I had that conviction for many years. Until the internet came along, and in 1999, when I got a phone call from the Stockholm School of Economics to be part of their executive education program and become essentially a teacher on anything digital, right. we just discovered that this is the future, that everything's going to take over everything, and it's a whole new field. Can we find somebody, please, who understands academics, who also has first-hand successful experience from the media industry? Oh, we found this one guy, <laughs> Alexander Barr. So they called me. I just sold my first record company and you know, had time left to do other things and pursue other things. And I thought, yeah, that's a good idea because it allows me a platform for which I can start writing. Right. I found John Sedekvist the next year and we decided to write at least three books together and off we went. So we're now five books into our process and we're working on a sixth book. So suddenly with the advent of the internet, you had some grounds to cover, some new grounds. And yeah. Hmm. yeah, exactly. I mean, The first book, The Netocrats, essentially, what would Karl Marx have said about the internet? Okay, fair enough. Uh, second book, The Global Empire, is like, what would Hegel or Nietzsche have said about the internet? Third book, The Body Machines, what would Spinoza or Deleuze have said about the internet? So, you know, you just take on these personalities, these psychologies, 
of these writers and these, these thinkers. And, and you kind of put that into your mindset and you realize you are becoming your own philosopher in that process. Prepare mm. yourself by writing a text. But how would you, how, how would you describe your basic stance uh, to, to the human psyche and to the internet? Like if you, if you had to summarize it in, 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 in two I'm, I'm very neutral. I'm very neutral towards this monster that the American <laughs> military created in the 1960s. There was a successful project out of the American military in the 1960s. In the, uh, there was a disastrous project also, the moon landing. <laughs> I'm going to keep into this in the next book. The moon landing was a total disaster. I mean, yeah, everybody thinks it was a success. To put a flag on a rock floor is not impressive. But stupid. But the internet totally transformed the world. It's a monster. We can blow out each other with atomic bombs and certainly climate threats and all kinds of things. It will be up and running forever. It even has its own energy supplies these days. So the internet will be up and running forever. And I mean, if you, if you came from outer space, arrived on planet Earth in 2019, you probably described this as the controls planet knows what it wants it's called the internet and there are eight billion confused bodies tied to this one thing right that's essentially how you would describe the world today True. so i'm highly respectful of this divinity this goddess of chaos called the internet uh it's a flat structure which makes it incredibly complicated uh everybody's yelling at the top of the lungs it's like a flat structure with eight billion people that all have a megaphone screaming at each other and nobody's listening to anybody And we need to get some order into this. Right. This, this is where Google comes into the picture and why Google in a few years became the world's biggest company because they understood that algorithms is a way of giving order to people who are stuck in the chaos. And the highest value in any system always is about ordering chaos, what we call the phallic vision, right? Mm. The algorithms are doing that technologically. So the machines are ahead of us. The machines already live in the internet age. The question is, can we as human beings also adapt to the internet and understand that we're now submitting to this phenomenon and somehow we have to serve it in the proper way to get a good feedback from the machine. Right. And this new relationship between man and machine is what I'm totally focused on in our work. Right. But the question, the question I, I, I have basically, the question I have is like, why or how would, in, in context of internet and, and global connection, like how would a phallic vision look for an individual you know like how like i mean and i mean like for example you you talk at one point in your book about finding and expressing your own archetype right yeah and, but that so is a that's a tribal i don't say collect that's a tribal process you don't decide which archetype you are and you can't find it inside yourself you get your archetype the right. way it works in a nomad nomadological initiation ritual is that you pass from boy to man And you suddenly realize that the manly body you have has now also been recognized as a manly mind. Right. The full man. The next thing is when you achieve that is that the elders of the tribe owe you to give you direction. Right. This is where the phallic vision starts. So the elders will tell you, this is the kind of man we see in you. This is the kind of archetype that you could be that we need. Right. And here's an older mentor of the same archetype who will guide you. So... That is how it works in a nomadological setting. So then you might as well apply that for the entire collective as the tribe. And where's the tribe going? So the, as soon as a young man received his own archetype and started to dwell inside of it and then explode and grow and realize, yeah, this is truly me. Uh, once he's done that, he will look to his gang of brothers, usually the five men you hang out with between the 20 and 30. That's what we know from data now. 
to then look to the tribe of 157 grown-ups, plus some children and elderly. Uh, and then you go towards the 200 size that you are responsible for. You are the expert of your archetype for these 200. Right. You contribute and you create an abundance towards them. Then you will be certainly concerned, well, where is this tribe heading? See, if I was given a phallic direction by the elders, then why doesn't the whole tribe have a phallic direction? And then if you look at contemporary society, if nothing else, the existentialist crisis is absolutely obvious when you look around and you cannot find a single politician, a single academic, or even a single entrepreneur who has the slightest vision for the future. Right. They have no idea. This is the price you paid for killing Phallus in 1945. Right. It was understandable, but it's a disaster waiting to happen. And that's exactly why we see the entire West now with social justice warriors and the Rousseauans everywhere wrong. That's what always happens when control and order is lost and chaos sets in and people are paranoid. You get things like the Me Too thing and things like that. It's all no, I was just I, I was just about to bring that up because you have all these yeah. movements. No, you have uh, Me Too and you have Lynch climate. Mobs. Yeah, yeah, and and you have uh, Extinction Rebellion and all these things. But Lynch I can't. Mobs. But I can't. Yeah, but I, I can't shake the feeling that they are completely missing the point. You know. Uh, yeah. And, you, and, and so, no staying so power. And so how? Like if 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 you frame if if you frame that as like matriarchal and feminine. So how would you how? Would somebody who is invested in, say, uh, rights and, 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 and climate, like do that from a phallic point of view? Like what, what would be the difference? Well, you're already touching on next book. So there you go. So, so how do you know that women live in a society where phallus is lacking? Women don't know that. They just don't know that the contribution no longer trusted place the men as their support system. Uh, they're getting paranoid about that. They see threats everywhere from coming from anything. Right. Uh, feminism is going to be the biggest enemy towards Islam in Europe in the 2020s. Trust me, right? And feminists are going to go into astrology next. That's the, the next stupid thing they're going to start defending, right? So, because <laughs> they've lost direction because the phallus is lacking for them too. There's no mm. direction for anybody in society. There's no right. vision. There's no strategy. Where are we going to go? It's completely lacking. And back of what social justice warriors and the current lynch mobs. I, I knew it when attack occurred in 2004. Remember attack in Europe? Attack was a huge thing in France and Germany in 2004. They came occupy. Right. I was asked to go and speak at one of these occupy events and I said, no, I will not because these are just kids. They're full of themselves, narcissistic. All they want is a picture, prove they were there and a t-shirt and off they go. The guys right. at Wall Street would sit and laugh at them. The guys at Wall Street don't have a problem with, with Occupy Wall Street. They have a problem with robots killing their jobs, right? That's the real threat, technology, not kids, right? So we're full now of these lunch mobs that pop up. The guys who run Extinction Rebellion in the UK, they weren't interested in climate two years ago. They were in some other lunch mob then. They yeah. just jump from one issue to the next. It's all about some damn online narcissism. That's what's driving this thing. Right. It's not deep. It's not serious. It doesn't take... They like climate change because they like a fucking apocalypse. They're eschatological. They thrive on it. And they, they think they're higher and superior to other people because they now suddenly have become activists. Right. Just bullshit all the way through. So the real utopian perspective, which is the attack on dystopia. Dystopia is what you, you get matriarchy without patriarchy. You get paranoia, essentially. Okay. 
The utopian vision comes from the phallic. And I would say three things here. We definitely need an ecotopianism that responds to environment. Environmentalism isn't good enough. It doesn't deal, deal, deal with reality. It's too moralistic. Solutions are actually with more engineering and more technology. Right. So that's the ecotopian perspective. We already have debates here in Scandinavia. I'm debating with the former, I had a debate last week with the former leader of the Green Party. They're picking up on this instantly. They think it's great because finally the, the debate on, on the climate is maturing. It's becoming different divisions with different perspectives, which is what it needed all along. So ecotopianism. The other one is cosmopolitanism. The biggest challenge is still not the bomb or the climate. The biggest challenge is how to love the stranger. In a world where 8 billion people are communicating directly with each other, suddenly Derrida and Levinas look like prophets. And Simon Critchley too. All the guys are talking about the difficulty of loving the stranger. Okay, that's the big issue. We need the machine to help us with that one. That's for sure. That's the number one priority I'd give to the machine if I could program the machine. So tell the machine, you need to invent blockchains and other technologies so that we can communicate with and trade with and have relationships with strangers without our tribal instincts being awoken all the time. This is also the proper response to the old right and nationalism. Right. Is to understand where they come from, to understand why nationalism is huge and growing, but also to cut them from underneath by saying, in the world we live in today, nationalism just isn't good enough. Right. The city of God is the idea here. So cosmopolitanism, the third one is what we wrote synthism first. And that is actually what I would call the tower of God. So that's like, where do our dreams go? Into what kind of state can we go? What kind of mindset will we live in in the future? And that is a kind of experimentalist mindset. The, the Zoroastrians of Iran called it Haurvatat, which is the exact opposite of Plato's dream about perfection. This is like a state of constant renewal and constant novelty out of creativity. Right. That's what we call synthism. Synthism meaning either the God that we create or creativity as God. And for me, synthesis uh, is just the third leg, the third utopia of right. the three utopias. Right. We're right, working right. with these right now towards an Exodus book. In three to four years' time, you'll see it materialize, and you'll probably personally be involved in that process too. So do you think that the internet actually will facilitate a, a phallic uh, vision of man? Yeah. To be honest about it, if, if you were the sky and you saw Earth, you'd probably want to fuck the Earth so you cause a rain. <laughs> <laughs> the rain god is the first god the first male god because he obviously fucks the earth he spreads water right so sperm over the earth rain right so the same way here if the internet essentially is a feminine phenomenon it's a yin what right. is it? it's a flat structure right covers the planet and in itself it's chaotic with enormous potential right if you want to have babies here in a sort of idea wise sense if you're a man you want to have babies The internet is something you want to fuck to have babies. And that's what tech entrepreneurs do. And by the way, 100% of the world's tech entrepreneurs are men. That is how attractive it is you know, to, to go into this environment. So the fallacy here has to be, what are we going to do with the technology? And there are two ways to approach that. One of them is what the Americans are obsessed with at the moment with cognitive science and, and complexity studies and everything that Americans are obsessed with is the will to intelligence. But they overemphasize that because that's actually matrical response. It's a bit lesbian here. It's a bit matrical response to a matrical phenomenon. The phallic response to the internet phenomenon is a will to transcendence. And that's right. not self-transformation. No, it's a transformation of society as a whole, or at least of your culture. 
of your right. subconscious. So, so that's what you call the consumateriat. I think it's the English word. Like if, if you're just a consumer of internet's content, instead of using it in a phallic way to, you know, transform. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the underclass of this world, the majority of people will be a consumateriat. Yeah. I give you a perfect example. It's going to happen in the early 2020s. The people who stay within the echo chambers that we created in the 2010s right. will be the consumateriat. They are only comfortable with people who think exactly like themselves, where their opinions are reinforced and there's no challenge. The people who look for antagonisms now actively, they say that I'm tired of just having people around me think like me. That's not tribal. Right. Tribal is to be in a context where we have a shared vision of where we're going to go, but we have different roads of getting there. And that's why we listen to each other and we get clever, more clever in the process. Right. So the, the people who are actively looking for the antagonists right now are obviously showing signs of being what we call netocrats. The new elite. They, they, they're always on top. They, they're on top on Twitter. The netocrats are the guys with 140,000 followers. The concentrators have 11. Mm. So why would we follow anybody but the people who actually show us in the right direction, at least as far as they can possibly go? That's right. why the visionaries today are online and they get their followers already. Whereas the old structures like politics and academics and the old industry do not attract a single smart guy any longer. I mean, you don't want to do television. You can do YouTube. <laughs> you don't, right. you don't want to be living in the old environment. You don't even want to be associated with it. It's dead and over. It's, it's, it's just, it doesn't realize yet that it's a zombie and it's dying. And that includes politics. Right. So how, how does it work? Like how does uh, the, the digital shaman fit into all of this? The digital shaman is the guy who by intuition understands what's going on and decides for him or herself whether you want to be inside of it or stay outside of it. And I'll tell you what, shamans usually are comfortable in the outside world. They're very independent. Actually, even the whole idea of the individual was originally a, a, a mimicking of the shaman. All right. Except that only the shamans love to live on their own or in small groups. But they live outside the tribe, in between tribes. I think some of these shamans will just move into the countryside and, and get a cat and do a few things online and be artists, but really don't get too involved. But some shamans, probably more guys like you and me, will have to put on the robe, walk into the village square, and declare what they've seen. Right. Because the other guys in there need it. So the priest is the guy who has to write the phallic vision and has to present the mythology. The phallic vision you present in the morning to the soldiers and the hunters, that's where we're going to go, and that's where we're going to win the war, or that's where we're going to conquer territory, or that's where we're going to win the hunt and, and come back with an abundance. That's phallic vision. The magical storytelling that the priests do at night, they, then they put the woman at the child center, it's all in a circle, and, circuit, and it's all about celebrating woman and child in front of the man. Like, these are the guys that deliver your future. You better deliver to them. Right. And that is why mythos can be any story you want as long as the effect of the mythos is that we must move tomorrow morning. Right. Whereas logos has to be solidly factual all the way through. For example, the way science is perceived to be. This difference between logos and mythos. And the third story, the third narrative is the pathos. The pathos is sexuality and theater. Because sexuality is a theater in itself built on the sex drive. The difference between human beings and animals is that human beings only have sex. <laughs> we don't. We fuck it up completely. We, <laughs> we, we were obsessed with it. it it's like Slavoj Zizek correctly says, sexuality is the thing that's never harmonious, never balanced. 
it, it never reaches any any point of we can relax or anything. It just come back to haunt us constantly. We're obsessed with it. It's like an urforce, an urkraft or something like that that comes from underneath. And, and precisely, this is the weakness of current thinking in America, is that Americans are, for some strange reason, avoiding sexuality. We in Europe understand that this is what we have to bring to the table because this is the third story told, pathos. So pathos is a story of man and woman and sexuality. And right. it's driving the other two. Right. It's what children I mean, like, fantasize about but have no access to. I mean, like, like speaking of the, of the phallic force, I, I don't know how it is in Sweden, but in Germany, we had this philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, and then came, came in the Nazis and occupied his, in a weird way, his philosophy and now we have like a very strange relationship to will and the phallic force and tumors and how you want to call it but you know i i always think that you know what what would your description or description would be for someone who want to live a more phallic life okay learn the difference between authentic phallus and fake phallus the fake phallus is usually very popular instantly and it unites us through something we hate so he picks up an object and we're unified through the hatred of that object. Hitler and the Jew, Stalin and the Kulak, Mao and your parent, right. Pol Pot in Cambodia and anybody who wore glasses. <laughs> right. Okay, that's Rousseau. They're all Rousseauans. None of them is a Nietzschean, none of them is a Marxist. Nietzsche would have hated Hitler and Marx would have hated Lenin for going through with the revolution and would certainly have hated Stalin. Stalin is not a Marxist. Stalin is a Rousseauian. Right. We have to understand the mistake the Soviet Union became, the failure it became, the failure the communist China became, and still is today, and the failure Nazi Germany became. They became these failures because boys were allowed to play gods. And when a boy rather than a man is allowed to play God, you get the mistake of somebody who unites you through hatred. So these are the fake fallacies, and they're the most common. Okay, we have soft fake fallacies. They're called things like Donald Trump. Right. At least anybody can see that America voted for Cartman from South Park as president. Right? It's pathetic. So, and an and, and no, authentic so, fallacy. Uh, authentic fallacy. Oh, God, it's so damn rare. But this is why I became a Zoroastrian, because I went all the back to history of ideas and discovered that Zoroaster realized 3,700 years ago when he wrote the Gathas in Central Asia that if we've settled down, we will no longer be on the moon. And if we're no longer on the move, the mythos can no longer be about we're going to get on the move the next day, but rather our minds have to move. So we're just going to be nomadological in our ideas. The problem with that is that some of these guys will run off with the craziest, weirdest ideas and build huge pyramids to celebrate their own damn egos, right? Right. So history is this havoc. It's still after 5,000 years. We haven't come to terms with the fact that we settled down. That's exactly how obesity pandemics, where we take all these pills because of a psychiatric diagnosis, like massive pandemics in our society. We still cannot stay in one place because then our ideas and our heads go off. And the question right. is, where do we direct these ideas? The Zoroaster realized when we fuck it up, hopefully the Saoshian, the savior will come to save us. Right. The Saoshian will bring order to the chaos. Later when the Persians, they loved the Jews when they conquered Babylon. So they, they set the Babylonians, you know, they told the Babylonians, you can have a religion, we have our religion in Persia, because we're Zoroastrians. So we, we have the universal religion anyway. We can include you within our bigger scope. So if you have a truly universal, universal religion, why would you worry about other religions being inferior to you? I mean, they're obviously just part of the game anyway. 
but they loved the Jews and basically invented the idea of the nation. said, you Jews came out of Egypt or something like that. That was the first nation. We built the empire because we're Persians. Why don't we just sponsor you guys to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and really establish the nation of Israel? So the nation, as an idea, was born inside the Persian Empire as a result of Zoroastrianism. And the Jews then took the Zoroastrian universal savior, the Salshont, and made him their own tribal savior, the Messiah, which is more accessible to people. And out of the mythology of Messiah came Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So the thing we got from the Zoroastrians was the idea of the savior. But please remember that only the Zoroastrian Salshont is relevant today because now we need a universal savior. We can't have a local savior. Because he's just going to be a local warlord. You can go right. to Afghanistan to study that. Right. That is the shift. That's why we need to leave the Abrahamic religions and move into the face of real universal religion. And in that case, none of the Abrahamic religions will do because they're all dualistic. They're all about the afterlife. Mm. That's what we can no longer believe. What I really like about your books are that they don't use like the standard narratives of developmental stages and stuff like that. So like in Digital Libido, what you did is, is using Freud and Freud's examples. And I, I, I told you that I have a friend who just also read uh, Society and Its Discontents and he was yeah. like blown away how up-to-date it still is. So and, and you, is. Use, you use that model to, or that, that approach of Sigmund Freud to describe our society now. But even if we would use a more de de developmental approach, wouldn't you say that, you know, a, a more post-modern post age would be more phallic in a way? No. No? That's not, no. The Roma have lived in a strictly matrical culture for a thousand years. It's not very successful. Afro-Americans today in America, they, they're, they're stuck in a matrical mindset without the phallic. Just look at Nigerian immigrants arriving in America. No, I mean like, like a post-modern post society. No, the phallic will not suddenly materialize. All right. Okay, if you don't look for the Messiah, we're not going to find him. We have to have a crisis awareness. You've got to have a guy like Zoroaster. You've got to have a Moses or a Christ or somebody comes in and say, we need the Savior. Right. If nobody says, if, if the priest doesn't walk into the village square with a robe on and says that you need the Savior, you fucking need the Savior. If, if nobody does that, people are not going to look for the same. They're going to go down. And they're going to end up in, a, in an endless loop of self-hatred, resentment, and destruction. So the problem is on nobody has a vision of where we're going to go. They can only be, it can only go downwards. It can only be an obsession with tonality and etiquette where the search for substance and essence is gone. And this obsession with tonality and etiquette because empty moralism, when everybody's word policing each other like we do in contemporary society. And, and it's like we don't even see what we're lacking. We don't even see the fallacies is not there. So for me, it's important to go back to the origin of postmodernism. There's nothing wrong with the Frankfurt School in Germany in the 1930s. Those thinkers were brilliant. Okay, so take Freud and take Adorno from the Frankfurt School, both Jewish, German. They knew Hitler was coming. They saw it happening. They knew it was a fake fallacy, but they could also celebrate the phallus as an idea in itself, because they're Jews and they understand the concept of the Messiah. All right. They understood that Hitler was not the Messiah of the Germans. He was a fake Messiah that would cause havoc. They warned us about him. That's exactly why Freud wrote Civilization Discontent in 1930. Okay? Exactly where everybody thought Hitler would come as a savior to save Germany. It got really, really popular. That's when he wrote the book and said, no, this is going to fail on a massive scale. They saw it with Stalin too. 
That's exactly why Adorno tried to defend Marxism against Stalin and against Lenin. So these guys are wonderful. And I can tell you one thing, Freud and Adorno would never approve of the sort of castrated, man-hating, phallusating postmodernism that arrived later in their name. They would even disapprove Habermas. Habermas claims to be some kind of inheritor of the Frankfurt School. He's not. Habermas is nothing but a model cunt recycled 200 years later without understanding Hegel. That's all there is to Habermas to me. So the field that opens up is that the phallus needs to be rediscovered. It's not going to happen in the West. Why do you think I just toured India? Okay. Cultures that understand the need of phallus, like in India, they understand right now that either India is going to become the factory of the world with all the coders and the programmers for the international data industry, but they're only like a consumptariat working hard for big American and European Chinese corporations. Either that, or they will have to innovate. Mm -hmm. To innovate, they have to go phallic. Now, if I talk to the Indians, all I need to do is to put Shiva in front of them. I said, you got Shaivism here. You right. got phallic. You got Shiva temples over the country full of lingams. You worship the damn penis everywhere in this culture. You need to go back into the Shaivistic mode. And they get it. And then I said, which, which technology sector could we conquer first and establish us, ourselves in and create patents for and thereby controlling it phallically? It takes me, it takes me an hour to turn an, an audience of Indians around to that point because they're so grounded, at least in the culture, and they realize they've gone into a complete mode of matriarchy, of the feminine, of the goddess. They even had Indira Gandhi, who almost fucked up the country entirely, at least turned away from that, and they're now looking towards something phallic. So they fixed it. That's what women are good at. The magical society of India has fixed India, but they're now looking for an authentic phallus that's better than Modi. Right. I, I, can have, I can have all these discussions there, and not a single social justice warrior in the room will protest. But you, you, just, you, know I mean? you just said that, that, that the postmodern society is basically emasculated and feminine. And yeah. so, like, how would an era after postmodernism look like? Well, it's a Western phenomenon. It's, India is not postmodern. And no, 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 but I'm asking you, like a, like a Western uh, era after postmodernism, where these problems are solved in a way. Well, okay, okay. The current attempts called metamodernism in Europe and, and this obsession with collective intelligence in America are still only in the matrical. They're all obsessed with the feminine. They're obsessed with dialogue, conversation. They talk about collective intelligence, etc. That's not the way forward. That's just building the container. That's good enough. America will produce brilliant cognitive scientists and brilliant computer scientists, and boy, we need them. And all these guys are referred to usually friends of mine in North America, for example. They're great. But that's not the answer. The answer is to go back to sexuality, go back to Freud and Adorno, go back to understanding what an authentic phallus is, humbly understand how rare authentic phallus is, and then maybe build authentic phallus in a relationship between man and machine. Right. That has to be some kind of function that has a will to transcendence. And as far as I'm concerned, I've never seen a single trace of transcendence in any machine. Machines right. cannot even crack jokes. They're just stupid when it comes to the phallus. Machines cannot be phallic, period. Okay, so that has to be a human and a masculine trait. I can only see an awakening of Western men. That's why I got involved in the men's work movement three years ago, and you probably personally have an alliance with it too. So I got involved in men's work. We're now working in 14 different countries. We're getting young men to realize this. We're training even now a whole bunch of young priests. We're training a whole bunch of young chieftains. So we're training engineers, and we're training new philosophers. We're training the guys 
take responsibility to come back in charge. And we do it by saying that maybe to begin with, we should have some desexualized spaces where there are men only and women only in our society, because that's what most cultures have always had. In the right. shamanic work, it's absolutely necessary. So you are responsible to the other men in the room instead of flirting with the girls all the time. That's a good right. start, right? Sure. When you're responsible to all the room in the group, you'll discover the archetypes become very clear very quickly. What right. kind of man are you and how do you contribute? And who do you collaborate with? And the whole tribal structure starts to fall into place. You're no longer an isolated individual man fighting all the other men for attention from women, right. which is the modern tragedy. No, you are proud of yourself as a collaborator with other men. You're a team. You know? And suddenly that team and the collaboration you do with other men is what gives you value. And off you go and realize what you could truly do today with the technology available, etc. Sure. I mean, I mean you uh, and I are I, moving I, towards that too. We, we, we are moving towards a network somewhere between the men's movement in Europe and, and people who are interested in philosophy, politics, and, and in solving the existential crisis. And we're also both writing, you know, we're expressing. I mean, like, I'm, I'm, very much a, I'm, I'm very much a Schopenhauer, like, I'm very much like Arthur Schopenhauer because he said you can't really want what you want. It's like, yeah. because you, you always see the people who are actually phallic in their whole approach to the world. And one has to ask if, if, if this is something you can learn or if, if this is just something one brings to the table. That's what I'm asking, you know? Well, it's, it's very strange. Say you're a 23-year-old student, you know, society's fucked, but you're doing well at university. So you've got self-confidence enough. You come to one of our men's camps, you come into the room and you ask somebody like me, so what should I look for? I said, well, number one, look at yourself. You got a dick between your legs and hopefully a dick in your head. Okay. Let's find out where do you have your self-confidence? Is it the dick in your head or is it the dick between your legs? Right. So have you worked out your body? You know, are you fit? Do you have the right nutrition? You know, and you're good at fucking women or whatever. So you don't have to be desperate about it. Great. Then we got a self-confidence in your body. Then we need to work on your mind. And even more so, we need to work on you making alliances with guys who have a great mind, but don't have the physical presence and self-confidence that you have. Right. And they go, wow, that's the beginning of collaboration. It's just mutual admiration between men. Admire the other men that are strong or you're weak. Tell them so, so they can admire you back. Right. That's, what that's how you find out your own archetype, what kind of man you are. But we ultimately work with the men towards an idea that you should be proud of the dick between your legs and you should be proud of the dick you got in your head and operate with the coordination between the two. It's very Zoroastrian. It's like being Oda and Master at the same time, right? Right. Like Oda Master. So this is a very simple way in a few minutes to explain to a 23-year-old guy what he, where he should go. And he says, that is so damn straightforward. Yeah. Now you understand where you both need to go to the gym and meditate. Now you understand where you both need to find a great lover and have great sex, but you also need to study deep. Right. Okay? So they get, they get, they, they look at themselves like these two things that are together. The mind is embodied and the body is unminded. At is to understand what it means to be man. To me, it's a very simple way of explaining what phallus is. Right. Yeah. I think like what, uh, what comes to mind is we, we have this developmental theories about like how mind develops and, and even like how loves develop and how you can be more integrative and have a greater embrace of everything which is fine obviously but what what i kind of feel missing is that we also need like a like an, a developmental scale of 
of will or follows, you know, because yeah, it's, where's it's, not, the no? it's, it's, it's just not, it's just like, it's, 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 it's a dick between your legs. It's you say like the, 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 the energy, the animalistic, but it's also like the sublime forms of, of will, you know, which go yeah, so, yeah. and, and, and so that there's, there's a scale which you can harness. And I think postmodernity is, very contrarian and very, very, uh, has a great aversion against all these masculine forms. And so these we... young men are masculine in their bodies. They come through the door and I said, even if your father wasn't around when you grew up, maybe you shouldn't have been in the first place, but you know, even if you don't have the role models, your body is masculine. You can trust your body being full of testosterone, your dick works, your mind works. You're a man, right? Biologically. Go to your biology and check with your biology. And right. they immediately respond. They immediately respond so strongly to, to it when I tell them, do you realize that the most important role of the phallus is to say no? Right. Create limits, borders. Okay. What is my most important work now going forward with the Exodus book and painting up these fantastic utopias? It's the point of with hubrises. We're probably going to go for the guys who want to travel out in outer space. That's a Elon Musk. What the fuck are you going to do in Mars? You can have Siberia. It's warmer, <laughs> less radiation. Nobody's there. It's all yours, right? Territorial expansion is over. Everything is now vertical. We build skyscrapers in places like Dubai and Singapore. And actually, most of the territory of the planet is becoming an expensive weight to carry around. Why do you still dream about conquering new territory when territorial expansion is historically over? It doesn't right. make any sense. You have to travel in your ideas. You have to put the expansion inside your mind instead. You have to concentrate it in your mind instead. That's the. No, you have to the, 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 uh, uh, conquer the chaos in your mind and to, you know, to to. Yeah. To, so. And you do that with borders. You do it with smart borders, and it's called membranes when you're really sophisticated. But number one is just to put the wall there. And if you ask a woman what she loves about a great fuck when she's had great sex, she will tell you, I feel calm because the chaos inside of me has finally become an order. So this right. is what Fallops delivers. The Fallops delivers order to the chaos. That's exactly why God did not create the world because there was chaos first. God created order in the chaos. Right. In, in the huge continuum, God came in and created discrete units of order, right? This, this is fundamental to physics, fundamental to, to cosmology, fundamental to the way we do philosophy as well. So that is what the phallic is. And that's exactly when you talk about saying yes to everything and embracing everything and loving everything. It means nothing. No. It, it, it's like it's the feminine saying yes to everything. Like you walk up with anything you've done to the feminine, it will give you gold star because they love you so much. Right. Oh, everything you've done is fantastic until you're so damn tired of it. That's like little boy or little girl discovers that I'm not tired of hearing yes and amen to everything <laughs> I do. I want to know how bad I am. And then you look for the judge who will look fiercely at you and look at reality and then look back at you and give you the proper judgment. Sure. Which is what you look for in the elderly at the initiation rituals. They look in there and say, we love you, we see your potential. But first of all, we're going to tell you what you must not do. Right. Where's your hubris? And that's exactly what these Tower of Babel stories are in the Bible. It's important, the hard work for philosophers is not to paint the fantastic painting. And not even to tell you how hard it is to get there. The hard work is to actually point out where you must not go. Because that's going to offend so many young men. Right. Don't offend them, but I want to do that. No, don't be a stupid boy <laughs> because it's not attached to reality. <laughs> you know what um, I like is like, um, I'm, I'm writing about these topics for a couple of years now and it's like super rare to find somebody who has like a, a similar phallic version on things. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's like, I'm, 
it's, it's like I, I see all when I read other... your text I felt exactly the same way this guy gets it right so and 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 it's like I, I see all these movements and extinction rebellion and I, I know the place where coming where, where they're coming from but it's there's some there's something crucial missing you know they're not uh, oh yeah they're, they're, they're not confronting themselves in a way you know they're not uh, confronting what they exactly. actually could do and and think that it's like sufficient to to protest Although everybody knows by now that pro protest has never led to anything, you know, it's well, like... The, especially not these guys, because these are guys who found a topic online a week ago. They've never mm. read a book in their lives. They never studied anything thoroughly. They read about it last week, and now they're running around the streets feeling superior to other human beings because they are concerned. Right. It's totally Versailles. It's Versailles, it's not Paris, it's mm. Versailles 1789. He's like, oh, I'm so concerned. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you discovered it four days ago. You know a few slogans and a couple of buzzwords. <laughs> and all you're obsessed with is to take your fucking Instagram picture and present yourself as this princess or this prince who's just discovered the end of the world. And right. actually, as Lacan would say, this is so banal, it's incredible because you're actually enjoying also the end of the world. You, you're not even interested in solution because if there was solution, it would take away your platform. Right. It's so, it's so narcissistic, so banal, so mediocre. It's just, it's just, and there's so few people out there. Guys like you and me do it. Brandon O'Neill does it in the UK. He's a fantastic Marxist libertarian like him. Love Brandon O'Neill. Even the tricksters like Milo Yiannopoulos are at least pointing out where the hypocrisy is at. Jordan right. Peterson did it wonderfully. Camille Pagla does it. Slava Shizik does it. There are these weirdos out there, shamanic personalities out there, public intellectuals who say, this is no good. This is, this is so damn silly and so superficial right. and so vain. It has no value. And unfortunately, even if we will laugh at this 50 years from now, it will cause tremendous havoc until then. And that is the problem. Right. The French Revolution was full of these guys. No, but, was, I, know, I was just thinking about and, and uh, uh, like writing an article about the role of the media, you know, because the, the media, they don't want to describe reality as it is. They can't do that. Oh. They have like their own agenda. And so like, and this is why I like this, 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 this term of consumitariat um, I like too much because it's like, it, it doesn't change anything if you just buy into the narratives of the media and you, you go on your protests and nothing. Yeah. So it's just like the, the only benefactor, the, the only person who benefits from that is the media itself. And so it's... Um... The media is today essentially a cynical commercial enterprise. Okay, so if you run a media house to try to find who actually reads us, who follows us and who pays for our services and who does not, and then we make those who do not abdicts and we attack them as fierce as we can with the same autonomous message all the time to reinforce to the category that actually pay for our services right. to have their echo chamber reinforced. It's incredibly idiotic. Right. Now, if you don't see that, if you don't see that that's how media operates, then why the hell do you want to be there? We have our studio here in Stockholm. We got, well, it's more like an urban monastery and the guys around here. We can't watch TV channels like Fox or CNN any longer to check out what's going on in America because it's so boringly predictable. Yeah. Now. It's the it, same it's thing just, with Facebook. I can't, I can't go oh, on Facebook over. and, and, and share opinions because it's just, just, it's just the worst. It so, is since I constant, stopped doing it. And, yeah. and since I stopped doing that, my life is way better now. <laughs> 
Facebook has become an underclass phenomenon. It is the consumptariat in its pure form. They have lost the elite. There are no netocrats left on Facebook. The clear sign of you being netocratic in 2019 is that you left Facebook and you don't ever want to return. It mm. has no value for you whatsoever because Facebook just gives you a megaphone and asks you to be a troll and shout at somebody that you hate. Mm. You don't learn anything from that. It's not even entertaining. There's no infotainment value to that at all. And that's why Facebook is now losing millions of users every month. Deservedly so. It right. was a Ponzi scheme for idiots all along. Nothing else. We knew it because we had a phenomenon called MySpace 10 years before it. It's true. And it's like Karl Marx would say, MySpace was a tragedy. Facebook is a farce. There's no quality. I mean... And at the end of the day, even tech guys know the algorithms are going to win because the algorithms get better and better and better and better. And the algorithms will take over the world because they are phallic. The algorithm is the phallic mechanism that creates order in the chaos. So the algorithms is what the machines have done. That's the phallic aspect of the machines. And the question is, in what way can we human beings, especially men and a few lesbians probably, be phallic? Right. And start to define the vision of where we're going to go, set out the goal, give it a name, and point out the direction. That's, that's to me the next 10 years, 10, 15 years. That has to be done. That's what's lacking in philosophy. So Shizik says he can't so, do it. So what's, what's your great vision? building a platform. So, what's your so, utopia? What's your vision? Well, I'd say synthesis, ecotopianism, and cosmopolitanism. The name of that is the city of God in the Bible, uh, which is what the internet has to become. And within that city of God, if that's only gated community for the few, that's a good start because the promised land was not for the Egyptians. You didn't kill the Egyptians. You basically said, we're leaving you. So right. The small elite walked off. They became the Hebrews. And they conquered the promised land. So the promised land is what we need to set out. And as few people will think of this way, they will find each other on the planet right now. They usually live in city states. They make tons of money. They're in tech, but they're also very discreet because you have to understand that Precisely because everybody is screaming at the top of their lungs, exhibitionism has no longer any connection to power. The power today is going to be voyeuristic. It's got to sit on the sidelines and look at the drama that's being played out. My job is to define this elite and try to live with them, to define them. Because then I define an ideal. You can be like this. I think my students now are probably going to be Marxist more than Nietzschean. They're going to be more Marxist in their approach, and they're going to try to find, can a group of people be like this, a larger group of people like this? Can we extend this? Can we motivate more people to be socially intelligent and thriving and be creative and, and have all these qualities that are needed to be netocratic? If they can, they can join too. I, I don't have a hope for humanity as a whole. I think we're moving towards a very, very strict and controlled class society that will look more like the Indian caste system than anything. Mm. Uh, and I think the constant territory is going to be the vast majority of people. I don't see the vast majority of people being ready to sacrifice anything or understanding how you create true creativity. You have the buzzwords everywhere. People talk about creativity. They talk about sustainability. They, they don't know what they're talking about. They, they, they don't add any value to any of those words at all. They just, they just throw them around, like if that would be work. So to go into an experimentalist mindset, to go into a mindset of Haurvatat, as the Suraj has called it, to ever-refreshing novelty and change, is an optimal relationship between man and machine. And where I agree with the Americans is the term for this. We call it symbiotic intelligence. Right. It's the optimal relationship between man and machine. But the world to transcendence, which is the most difficult part of it all, something that we human beings have to do on our own without the machines. 
And that is to define where we're going. And the name for that point we're heading towards is God. Right. That's where I put God. In the future, at a point where we're going to go. All right. So you, you, you're speaking about like, a, like, a, like an elite? Yeah. Right. Like how many people are there? Would that be like also a tribe of say 150, 200 people? What has happened online is that the people who do have a lot of followers quickly become friends with one another. Right. You see yourself how, how a sort of smart, clever, techno-philosophical network is emerging right now in Europe and North America. People could connect with one another, talk to each other. They go into dialogue and suddenly they take over that whole scene, right? That's how everything moves now in a network dynamical society where the networks take over. So you become part of a network, you're recognized by that network, you're inside the discourse, and suddenly you, get, you become very powerful because of your collaborative skills, because you're practicing a collective intelligence within that collaboration. And then you tie the machines to it, it gets symbiotic. I mean, you probably have read the, the article from Peter Limberg, uh, The Mimetic Tribes of... Oh, the, I love Peter. I yeah, love yeah. Peter. Yeah, he's a friend. He's a brother. He's wonderful. Yes, I have. Yeah. So, and, so, and so, like, that, that, that is something that I observe, which is basically new, like in the last five years, that there are actually some uh, concrete tribes are emerging and, and who are in dialogue with, with each other. Yeah. And, and, and you know... And the brokers, define the landscape and the geography. Hmm? Yeah, and the power brokers of those networks will now in the 2020s go into antagonisms with one another and do it publicly and win a whole new audience because of it. Mm. Whereas some grumpy fans who would love to stay in the echo chambers will be very disappointed with them. That's mm. also natural. Lindbergh's book or text is based more or less on our book, The Netocrats, that came out 20 years ago. We didn't discuss the exact medic tribes at the time because it was too early in 2000. Oh, right. But we, okay. we painted a world of tribes and subcultures. And in 2012, I wrote a piece called The Golden Age of Sects and Cults. And I was warned about this because I said, before we actually know that the tribes and the subcultures have taken over the world, and we pretend that the old structure is still in place, we're going to see a lot of experimentation with these tribes and subcultures, meaning that anybody who's totally mad and the fake messiah, whatever, will have his own following. That's exactly right. what is happening right now. We have the maddest, weirdest cults. We'll see all kinds of mad terror sects pop up in Europe and North America, blowing off bombs and doing kinds of weird, nasty shit over the next 20 years. That's for mm -hmm. sure. Until we start to qualify which ones of these tribes and subcultures actually has a kind of value. And then we're going to have to be very tough with ourselves and recognize that those tribes and subcultures that we do not necessarily benefit from, but that are doing the right thing, we'd have to be recognized as such. Right. The way you recognize another nation even if you've been at war with it. You recognize that, yeah, you won the war. You have the right to territory. And, and, and we accept that, right? right? So eventually we'll see tribes and subcultures that are more authentic and they will win the war over the algorithms. But until then, we're going to see a lot of mad sex and cults come forward. Absolutely. I mean, like for me, podcasting itself is like a door, doorway to, to this whole world. And I like it so much because you have like the, the ability, I mean, what we're doing right now. So it's all just possible through the technology, through the net. And it's like what, what we can do with it. And, and yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. It always boggles my mind. Like, like um, yeah, I mean, like how we can shape conversation through it, you know? Yeah. And it's, And I like that it's kind of rough because the, the, the comfortable, lazy students, they will go for the highest sound and picture quality, right? right? And the really smart students, they will actually ignore that and try to go straight to the content. 
right. they discover that they find the weirdest teachers out there, like Crazy Wisdom, you know, from Tantra, Crazy Wisdom. Like, I don't want a teacher as a role model. I'm not a kid. I'm a grown-up person. I can make up my mind. So when I listen to the guy who's failed or the guy who is really totally mad or, you know, something like that, because that's where I can actually learn the most from. Right. And when you start deciding for yourself, you're just going to learn. You're not going to copy or mimic anybody. That's when you become a really smart student. That's when you also move into the netocratic realm. Right. Concentrarian. Concentrarians are obsessed with the packaging. The netocrats are obsessed with the substance. And this is again where I repeat to the phallic. The matrical will only ever produce the container. Right. But the phallic is the only approach towards finding a content and give a substance to something. Mm. Because without the phallic, there's no substance there. Yeah. And we only have one phallic monastery religion, and that's Orastrianism. <laughs> I, I accept Taoism too, because Taoism tries to unify Orastrianism and Buddhism. So the Tibetan Buddhist, the Vajrayana Buddhism does the same thing. We have, we have all these hybrids, even Sufism to a certain extent is actually an attempt to, to hybridize the two. So if you hybridize, the, if you mix the yin and the yang, you get the full picture. Right. That is the honest picture, to be honest about it. But, you can also take an Hegelian approach towards religion and say, which religion do we need now? Rather, which one is eternally right, right? And in that case, I would say a phallic modest faith is the only one that would be credible that we could properly build from right now. So I haven't read Netocrats, but Netocrats, that basically signifies these tribes, these, these, meme, uh, these, these mimetic tribes, okay? It describes a, a, a society where the class structure is between the networks. Okay. And it describes simply through simple mathematics and logics why that is the case. Right. The larger your network becomes, the more you're going to try to reach out to the smart guys in that network, and you're going to start a smaller network and leave the bigger, larger network. I mean, and the, that's the, just the case the, pyramid the, eventually. The, the, the weird thing is the internet is so young, basically. You know, it's one generation. Right. And so, like, the, the question is, like, how could it look like in 50 or 100 years? You know, there must be there must be some stratification and some differentiation. And, you know, it's like, it, it, you know, it's just unfolding itself right now. We will think of it as the world. When the world becomes augmented, we will think of the entire planet as being augmented. So digital and physical will meet. You've got to have sensors absolutely everywhere. When I take the ecotopian perspective against environmentalists and take those debates, I said the number one thing we need is facts. And they agree. Yeah, science of it, okay. We don't even have any sensors in the Arctic or in the Antarctica, so we're only guessing about the snow and the ice and what's going on. We need sensors there. We need sensors in the oceans, we need sensors in the air. And you know what? We not only need sensors everywhere to create a sensocratic world where the sensors decide everything, because right. they also check our own human behavior, our own desires, our own drives. It's going to be eerie when your smartphone knows more about you than you do. But very soon there, right? It's, it's a logical consequence of the sensocracy. Cool. So that's your argument, basically, that you say the more we are connected, the more sensors are there, the better uh, we get data and uh, the, the more complex the Internet is, the more easy it will become to regulate ourselves. Is it the, yeah. is yeah, it the yeah, argument? Yeah. And it's a kind of neutral argument because the Chinese Communist Party loves the idea because that's what they try to implement in China. Right. It's absolutely everywhere. I'm just saying number one thing is put sensors in nature, put sensors around the planet, fix the climate, then contain the bombs. Any trace of any radioactive substance anywhere on the planet should also be traced by the sensors. Hmm. Because containing the bomb, fixing the climate, two priorities, not Chinese communism. I hmm. prefer if it goes away. 
So I don't do speeches in, in communist China or I don't work with them because I don't work within a dictatorship. And I disapprove it and I love the kids in Hong Kong. Let's put it that way. So, right. But censocracy is attractive both for the future tyrants and for the future good patriarchs and matriarchs that want to lead us. It can go either way. But censocracy is needed because otherwise we cannot contain human life on the planet. So then my next argument is what will make the censocracy run? What is its energy? What is its efficient cost? And they go, okay, it's going to take tons of cheap, abundant electricity. And I'll say, yeah, and you think solar and wind's going to deliver that? And they agree, no. So we need an energy solution to put some blood and energy into an incredibly complex system, which is that the entire planet will be covered by the net. Mm. And this was the cover of the global empire. The cover of the global empire is three simple, very illustrated pictures of this book we wrote in 2003. The first one is the planet. <laughs> Heidegger's idea of the planet in 1958 when he saw the first satellite picture. We finally know what the earth looks like. It's green, it's blue, it's beautiful, but it's an ocean of coldness and darkness, right? So first the planet, then the net, as an idea, network, then network put on the planet, and we call it the global empire. So right. it's very simple. It's just that the global empire is already here. It has a constitution, which is called the Internet Protocol. You cannot opt out. Iran is trying at the moment. It will probably fall apart precisely because of it. So you cannot disconnect humanity any longer from the internet, because then every trader in the world goes berserk. So right. the internet is one already. It's already a global empire. It's just that it's technological. It's not human political. We were no part but, of it. But you think like, like uh, we are uh, able to establish that kind of global internet network uh, in order to, to address climate change like in, in, in due time? It already exists. It just needs to go more intense. Yes, so the question is, will it, will it be that? The internet wants that, certainly. I certainly want it. I just want to make sure that the guys who are in charge are not going towards t tyranny. Mm. Uh, the way I don't want to go towards tyranny is that I make sure that plurality of voices are heard everywhere. It, right. it only reflects what I got from men's work when the five guys work together in a team. It is the plurality of archetypes that makes the team strong. Right. Dictatorships are weak. <laughs> I'm not moralizing against the dictatorship. I'm just saying that it's incredibly weak because you get this one little boy king at the top And he will only have Jesus around him after a while. And then it goes corrupt, and then it becomes the Soviet Union. I think John Rank's, uh, was it HBO series, Chernobyl? He's, he's an right. old friend of mine. Like, like that Chernobyl is, is the perfect example of a system that 40 years into that, or 50 years into that process, was so corrupted, only Jesus everywhere. So when they finally got a problem at atomic power station, they almost created complete havoc and apocalypse, right? So only in dictatorships does that happen. So... You want a plural system, a parallaxis, Schlawischisch's term. I know you like the word. <laughs> love it. Parallax is not a parallax. Parallax is, let's look from a different angle at the same point. And when I talk about God as the name of the phallic vision, I seriously mean that we should point out where the point is at and then start looking at God from different angles. What could be the different routes towards God? Which is the artistic route towards God? which is the engineering route towards God, which is the possible political route towards God, which is the philosophical route towards God. You know, the different angles you look at, where you're going to go, except that we all know that it's the same point we're looking at. Wow. So you're basically a futurist also. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I'm a philosopher and a futurologist. Mm. Yeah. How, how did you get to know Jan, Jan Söderquist? 
with, okay. with whom you write the books. Okay, I was hired by the Stockholm School of Economics in 1998 to run digital studies. I've done it ever since for executive education there. And then uh, the year after, I had a series of lectures on the internet is not what you think it is. Right. It's going to cause havoc and destroy, and it's more profound than you think it is. Meaning the dot-com companies are all wrong. So obviously I was right, and that led to requests from several publishers, and I picked one of them. And then I said, I always work in teams. I never work on my own. So I'd like to have a co-writer. So I just told the publisher and told everybody else, we need to find a co-writer. Otherwise, I'm not going to write that book. So um, several people pointed me towards John Sedeklist. He was a former movie script writer. And he'd become an established intellectual in Sweden, movie critic, uh, written a couple of books already on his own, and really clever guy. You know, the guy's read thousands and thousands of books. He's just very, very solid, right? So we met. It's a classical it's a classical meeting now. It's like we met. Apparently, I cooked a chicken that was quite dry. <laughs> I was sitting in my kitchen. I I'd had a party the night before. He kind of enjoyed the environment. And then I just put out the whole vision on the drawing board. Because that's how you do philosophy. It's all right. about proportions, right? So I drew it all. And he said, this is genius. <laughs> I definitely want to be part of this. I can see where I can fit in too. You know right. what? It's not just one book. It's three. Well, mm. And I'm like... Okay, can we give it 10 years? Say, yeah, I need 10 years because I like to drink a you know, glass of wine and have a few women around me and have a good life too. So I'm just going <laughs> to be a total nerd obsessed with this 24 hours a day. But yes, let's enjoy this, do this together. We shook hands. We decided to split everything within a box of, of, of what this would accumulate, split that 50-50, take equal responsibility, and we've never had an argument ever well, since. Mm. So after we'd done the trilogy, the first trilogy was finished with the Futurica trilogy, uh, we obviously knew that we could write more. There was another story coming. I also gave up music in that process. I wanted to be better philosopher, more sharp, go after the big issues and go deep. And John supported me in that decision. And then we decided to do the Grand Narrative Trilogy. And we're right in the middle of it right now. Right. So we're going towards the third and last book of that trilogy. Right? So how, how does the writing process work? Is this that he writes the draft or you write it and he, he, he edits it? Or how, how does it work? It, we, we allow a year or so to find out where we're going. And usually we're going back to the same point where we left the last time, only deeper. Okay. Then uh, we sort of split up the responsibilities and we don't care if he or I come up with an idea. We're mematicians. What's important is the idea. It's not owned by anybody. So if right. it's an idea that fits into the scheme of things and actually belongs to the next book, it arrives in there. So for example, early October this year, we gave the synopsis to the publisher and we're going to stay with it. Because when you, once you work with other people, you've got to stay with the drawing. You got to stay with the architecture. So the architecture is there, the material is there. Now we've got to put some energy into it. That's where the writing process starts. We've we've read like tons of books and studies and networked, you know, thought through where this Exodus book is going. Right. Uh, we have we have the framework, and what's going to happen is that while we write, the details will be there, and we write until we don't know who wrote what. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So it's literally a book in between us. Okay. So you're presumably you're living in the same city? Yeah, we live in Stockholm, but, but actually it doesn't matter. John lives most of the time in Italy and I'm uh, traveling okay. all the time in my research team. So we hardly ever meet. We do meet and enjoy it a lot and have tons of fun together. And we also have a sort of shared social circle by now. But we do meet and, and we just hang out and we just, we just enjoy the part of Sodacast. We're just these, right. these philosophers who always work you know it was Deleuze and Guattari before us and 
uh, Horkheimer, Adorno, philosophical history is full of these chains of two. No, but now because I'm, yeah. I find it interesting, uh, interesting as a fellow writer. So how, how does the working, the writing process look like? You have like an open doc and, and you're, you're writing it both at the same time? Yeah, or? yeah. Right, no, okay. no, no, no. I, I, I pick up a chapter usually and I work on it and then I send back a new generation of that chapter. And okay. I basically put it in our shared box. And okay. we can at any time go into any one of these. But as soon as we fix and arrange the text, it's a new generation. Right. So they always, it's always the latest generation in that box. Well, wow. mm. interesting. Yeah. I mean, again, internet, what's possible here is in yeah. Italy yeah, and yeah, you're in yeah, Stockholm. Yeah, so that's yeah, amazing. Yeah, exactly. Imagine you no. would have done this with, with letters. So that, that would be a drag. Well, I was <laughs> challenged by Jordan Hall. We had a conversation. I was in California the last time. And, and it said he decided to be the first philosopher ever who would not write a book. Well, at first, philosophers and Socrates, right? Right. So it'd be the end of writing. And I said, great. You know, it's like when I decided as a music producer to be the first producer ever in, in recorded history who would not use musicians. It's a limitation when you think about it. It's kind of, can I really do that? And they realize all the benefits because you actually dare to do it. Uh, I like the books and so do you, I guess, because the books now is no longer represent the ideas. It's more like what I summarized the ideas. So I can go to the Which, which books now? The books we write now are more oh, right, right, becoming right, right. summaries of our work because right. there's so many ways of exploring it and giving lectures and workshops and podcasts and everything. So we, we don't mind at all throwing the ideas out and they're not owned by us. So they share with anyway. So Jordan Hall doesn't write, want to write books? No. no, no. He says he's not going to write books. Mm. Kind of interesting, huh? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So he'll because be you, a you podcast have to... only philosopher. Huh? He'll be a podcast only philosopher. Uh, he has a podcast. Well, he, he's, he's, yeah, he does now. Oh, right. He's a guest on podcasts all the time. Right. So, you know, mm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it probably fits his personality type. He's very uncomfortable with it. With the, he writes great blog texts. He writes wonderfully, but he, he's apparently decided that book shape is sort of redundant and no longer worth the attention. I think it's more that the academic paper is over. Mm. I don't think the book is over at all. I think audiobooks, I love storytelling, for example. I think audiobooks have actually opened up a whole new audience for books. And I think once you get used to listening to a long podcast, you might as well start listening to a book. Right. So, sure. no, I think, I think well-written text being read or, or, or being listened to definitely has a future. Alexander, we talked for 90 minutes. I think we covered a lot of ground here for our listeners. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Lateral Conversations. My name is Tama Mark. This is a podcast about the evolution of consciousness, psyche and culture. I speak here with people who have something important to contribute to the development of spirit and society. My guests are therefore artists, philosophers, academics or activists, people not only with great ideas, but also the willingness to put them into the world. By doing so, I hope to contribute to the evolution by finding and exploring ideas and finally providing them to you. There's nothing more powerful, Victor Hugo once said, than an idea whose time has come. And if such a time for an idea has come, we can only find out by talking about them. <laughs>